So today, once again, we are talking to Joachim, James, and Furkan, and we will be continuing our polylift story. Um, so how about we just try with a small recap of polylift, and then we can just hit off with the questions for practical use of polylift. Sounds great. I, I can start with the recap, and thanks again for having us back on the show. It's great to be here. Uh, so I'm James, and uh, polylift, if if we're going to describe it in just one sentence, I would say polylith is an opinionated file structure for code bases. Uh, and the goal of that file structure is to improve the modularity, composability, reusability, testability, and maintainability. So lots of abilities of our code bases. And with the goal of giving a friction-free development experience. So we're developers and we really care about developer experience and the tools and the structure getting out of your way so you can concentrate on on adding value and business value. Uh, and I'd say the core of Polylith is built around just three high-level ideas or concepts, components, bases, and projects. So let's just very quickly explore each one of those again for people that have forgotten since last time. Mm -hmm. So components are the primary and most common of the two types of building blocks in Polylith. Uh, a Polylith project configures the set of components and a single base that get built together as an artifact and deployed as either a service, a library, or a tool. So it's like a set of bricks, essentially. Uh, and component is that main type of brick or building block. And compo each component exposes the functionality for a particular part of your domain as a set of functions in their interface. Uh, for example, we could have a user component, which might expose functions like add user or remove user in their interface, which other components can then call to use that functionality. And all of the complexity of the implementation of that is hidden away from the other components, uh, tucked away, uh, encapsulated away in the private namespaces. So only the public uh, functions are available to call. Mm -hmm. So how are components different to objects? That's a great question. Because uh, on first listening to that, you know, interfaces and functions, it sounds pretty similar. So that's a good question. Basically, I would say it's because components are essentially just a collection of namespaces. Uh, one namespace for the interface, where all those public functions live, and then as many namespaces are needed for how you decide to implement that functionality. And, and where they're different from objects is that unlike objects, components aren't instantiated. They're not in, an instantiated version of a class. There's no, you don't need to keep track of which instance or anything it is. They're just, I would call it code at rest. It's just a block of code. And it just, mm -hmm. it just sits there and it can call other code. Uh, and uh, we think that makes them inherently simpler. Uh, to give you an idea of their level of abstraction compared to uh, classes or objects, I would say that components almost always live at a higher level of abstraction than objects, but at a lower level than, say, microservices. So in other words, uh, a polylith service or, or microservice would almost always contain multiple components, and you would probably be able to fit a couple of uh, object or class uh, size things inside of a component. Furkan or, or Joachim, do you want to just say like average sizes of components in some of the systems you've worked with could be interesting? Something between 400 and 1000 lines of code, sometimes even just 100 lines of code, but so they are pretty small. Yeah, I mean, there's no limits, right? There's no upper or lower. You can put as much or as little in there as you want. That's part of the flexibility of the design. But um, I think it's just useful to give people an idea of the size. Okay, and then come, thanks, thanks, Yoki. And then coming back to the three main concepts. So the second concept is bases, uh, and bases are the second type of building block in Polylith. 
and they are slightly different to components because they expose the functionality of all of the components in one particular project as a collection of API endpoints. So they're like the bridges from the outside world into and exposing the functionality that you want to expose for an entire service or tool, uh, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Right, but you could also achieve the same thing with exposing them as components. Why did you introduce like a new concept? Ah, uh, that's another that's another good question, actually. And absolutely, you could. You're right. So you could just have one concept components, and then just have kind of different types of component, if you like. Where some, like you say, have an API. So why did we do it? And I, I think the main reason is because they are distinct ideas. There is a difference. Basically, components should always contain business logic. But we want bases to be the, just this thin API layer that just delegate through to the components. Um, and because components always have function-based interfaces and bases always have API endpoints, there's a difference there. And, and we just think, in general, good design is about teasing apart separate ideas. So if, if the concept is separate because there are enough differences, then calling it something else adds a lot of value. Because then when you're talking about it with your colleagues, when you're trying to think about and understand polylith code bases. I think there's huge value there in knowing that, okay, any project is going to have one base, and that's where all the API endpoints are, and X number of components. So that's mm -hmm. that's why we did it, if it makes sense. All right. Um, so if we could give like one example here. So the base in my whole application, you mentioned this would be my one um, API part, like, I don't know, REST API if I create something, yes. and then components would be... So they, so they would be all of the domain logic, they would be the infrastructure. So if, like I mentioned before, you might have components about invoicing or users or authentication. Uh, authentication would be more of an infrastructure thing. Maybe you have a database that you want lots of components to have access to, so you can create some kind of nice functions to help with that. It's very common that systems have logging functionality, so you'll probably have some kind of logging component that all of the other components can make use of. Uh, mm -hmm. And in it's that that ease of being able to share the code like that that really adds to the value of these uh, base and component building blocks. Cool, thanks. Nice. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the third and, and final concept are projects. And projects in, in Polylith are very much like projects anywhere else. So they're basically a configuration file um, that describes how to build something. And in the case of Polylith, it describes which single base and which set of components and the external libraries that that code depends upon uh, should be included so you can bundle it up and deploy it as an artifact somewhere, either as a service or a tool or however you want to deploy it. So it's just right. a way of configuring the, the combination of blocks, basically. So those are the three concepts, Yasek. Um, but there is one, not twist, but a, a little extra thing that's worth understanding about projects, and, and that's as well as projects that enable you to deploy these uh, services or tools um, as artifacts. There's a single, uh, what we call a development project, and it's a special type of project that lives at the top level of a polylith workspace. And, and it differs because instead of specifying what you're deploying, it's, it specifies essentially your whole development environment. It's where you say all of the components, all of the bases, uh, and all of the libraries that you want to work with in your editor or IDE. And, and the reason we do that is giving us that sim single development project gives us the fastest feedback loops possible uh, so it makes debugging, refactoring, testing, et cetera, really low friction. We can do everything from one REPL and uh, one set of code that we can easily navigate around. Um, and it also allows us to separate the development configuration from the production configuration, which is a huge benefit that I'm sure you Kim's going to talk about later. 
uh, and that allows us to optimize development for productivity and then the production deployment for non-functional requirements such as performance or scalability. So that was it, uh, the three and a half, if you like, core concepts in Polylith. Hope, uh, mm-hmm. hope everyone can understand those. So James, thanks for the recap. Um, so this time we're trying to talk about how you really use the Polylith and what does it give me as a developer? Are there any conveniences and what are the important concepts maybe as a developer I should understand? Uh, so Joachim, why don't you try to explain uh, so you created the, uh, you cre- you're sort of, as I understand, uh, you're the main part behind uh, most of the concepts here. So um, how would you describe this to a developer? Uh, what is Polylive? What are you trying to do with it? How are you trying to help me? Uh, yeah, we put everything in a monorepo. Why monorepo? Yeah, because that allows us to treat the whole code base with, with all the projects, including the development project as one thing so that we can keep it in sync and that we can make changes to our code in a coordinated way. So that is, that is important because the tool also, uh, when you run the tool and the tests, it's important that you don't change in one project and then commit and then another project that lives in another repository. Because then the, the, your build can fail. And then that has happened to me many times in other projects. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I can jump a bit like why monorepo. I think like one of the important things uh, is, um, you know, like if you don't have a monorepo, that means like you need to have multiple projects that you commit and maybe control it with a version number. Or even if you're using Debs Eden and just like, adding a dependency as a GitHub repository, you are depending on specific SHA or a specific mm-hmm. branch there. And which means like, if something's changed, you need to update that library. It be- they become library. They are not part of your code base anymore. So everything mm-hmm. in a code, in a, in a, in a monorepo becomes the living code that you can actually interact, change when, when you need it. Yeah, I think this is uh, what you mentioned, Joachim, the improvement of the feedback loop. Uh, are there any other, um, I don't know, uh, parts that uh, Polylive gives me to increase my feedback loop? Yeah, it's the, yeah. of course, you have this single development environment with a single repo, but we also can run a test uh, you, you, with, with the CLI Poly tool. You can run uh, the test command and that will detect what has changed changed uh, recently and just run the tests that needs to be executed so that yeah that gives you a faster a faster way to test your whole system right so the tool will know which files change and then it will rerun all the tests so if i have a huge code base with a lot of tests it will just pick the test that uh, knows it has been impacted and then it will rerun them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What other, so you mentioned CLI. Uh, what other parts are in the CLI uh, that are maybe important to talk about? Yeah, I can mention the info command. This is a, you write poly info, and then it shows you the, uh, it's a, like a matrix or, or a dashboard mm-hmm. that views the whole workspace. And uh, you have, it lists all your components and the bases. 
Mm-hmm. So you have one, let's say, a component and base per line, and then you have columns. Uh, so each column is a project, and then it uh, does. So 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 it gives you an overview of what components and bases are included in each project, mm-hmm. and it also shows you uh, what uh, components has changed and what uh, projects that has changed. And, right. Uh, and also what mm-hmm. uh, tests that will be executed if you run the test command. Yeah. I see. So this is like a developer command line tools dashboard uh, that will just give you overview of the polylift system, right? Yes. And for this overview uh, to work, uh, I need to have a certain directory structure. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And how do you assure, like, so when I start to work with polylift, how how do you like how do you create this structure like does it, does this have a flavor of like rails commands where it will just give me the structure and then you go from there how do you ensure that this all fits into uh into the structure so we have the workspace director at the top and then everything lives under there so we have the, the four directors uh components bases projects and development and those are the the directors where we put our code into. So components has a list of directories where each directory represents different component. So, mm-hmm. and the tool knows about this structure. As um, James said, the, the tool, the, the polylith structure, uh, how to say it's, it's 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 fixed. You could say you, you, it's highly opinionated. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. That's what you think. It's con- convention over configuration. Yeah, right? that's exactly what this is. I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, why do so we have that convention? Maybe that's what you could dive into your key and explain. Well, what do we get out of having that fixed structure? Why is that good? Why isn't it better to just have the wild west? Yeah, I mean, especially if you come in to a project as a new developer. That's a, that's a, a good example. If, you, if you're free to organize your code base in any way you like, uh, it becomes harder to find things. And maybe also things are uh, divided into separate repositories also. But here we have a single repository. We, have, we, we can explore all components we have. And if you just open up the components directory, Let's say we have 50 components. You can easily, and, and if you are new, as you, you come in as a new developer, you can very easily get an idea of what this uh, code base does or what it can do at least. And then you can open the projects folder and, and see what artifacts we build out of this. This could be, let's say five services and, and a tool, for example. And you can easily, I mean, we're, it's, it's a very quick way of getting an idea of what this code base can do. Clojure has this library-oriented approach where people are kind of against frameworks, I think, in the Clojure community. And in a way, this feels more like a framework, right, and less like a library because it's very opinionated. It's telling you a structure. So I understand why people might be balking and a bit scared of that. But where I think this is different, and it's kind of hard to grasp, at least initially, is that, yeah, there are some restrictions but that we've spent a long time thinking about where where exactly to draw those lines in the sand. 
and that mm-hmm. even within those boundaries there's so much freedom because we're not saying anything about what you can put in a component just that we think it's a really good idea to bundle up code with an interface encapsulate away the complexity like that's just feels like a really good software engineering idea so if you build your systems that way you also get these other benefits of being able to reuse that code pick and choose those blocks and deploy them in any configuration that you want to satisfy your deployment needs like Joachim has talked about before and I mentioned in the overview separating that concern uh, between deployment and development and really making development as, as blissful as possible while still giving us flexibility. Like it, it, I, I just think we've struck a really fine balance of, of giving people concepts that are just at the right level of abstraction to be really powerful to build systems with, if that makes sense. The good thing is that it doesn't um, stop you from implementing whatever you want. So if you, you, you can convert or migrate all your systems you have today it's to, to a polylith uh, architecture and it will work. So, so it doesn't restrict you from doing what you want to do. It's just saying, okay, it may be a good idea to, to have smaller uh, building blocks that you can kind of move around so, so they are not stuck into places, those um, um, building blocks. So it's not, uh, I mean, yeah, okay, I can talk more about that later, but it's, it's another feeling. And it, so it, it helps you with things, but it doesn't stop you from doing things. And there's, uh-huh. that's, that's really well explained, Yoki, but there's one other sort of red alert uh, siren that goes off in my mind when somebody says that something is convention over configuration or that it's um, some huge framework with, you know, really restricted. And, and that's the phrase black magic. I think where a lot of those big frameworks fall over is because they try and take too much control away from the developer. They try and make things so easy, but not focusing on making them simple. So what I mean there is if you have annotations and you're hiding a lot of complexity behind or, and, and you, you have a whole uh, ORM layer or whatever it is that you have that, that's adding this huge hidden complexity that sort of works by magic. And that's great for getting a project you know, initially launched super fast. So many people have done that with Rails, with Spring, et cetera, et cetera, those huge frameworks that have that kind of approach. But mm-hmm. we're not like that with Polylith. It's not, it's not giving you... It's not working with black magic under the covers. It's just functions calling functions. It's just named, you know, it's all these uh, building blocks or, or these concepts that we're already using in Clojure. It's just putting them together in a, a different way that gives us all of these benefits we've been talking about. Does that make sense, guys? Am I, am I explaining what I mean there about black magic well enough? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so as long as you're fine with the folder structure that you're giving me from Polylith, uh, They'll, this tool can perform additional things that will simplify all of them, all of my workflow. And I guess this is the only buy-in you're asking for, right? Exactly. Just fine with the metaphors and the structure of the folders and everything else, um, you can do whatever you want. Yeah, exactly. It's there. Uh, like you, you accept those uh, simple concepts in the beginning. That's the only buy-in you do. And then like what you get out of it is is huge because like when as Joachim mentioned like you can open the components folder and then you see a list of components you can understand it but like if you just run the poly info command let's say you're joining a new team and just you just want to get an idea about what is this project and then you can just run the poly info command you see all the different artifacts you see how these components are used in different places so 
or you run the depth command and then you see the, all the dependencies that you have. So it's it gives you a lot of um, developer benefits if you buy in the initial idea. But if you don't, still you can have a similar uh, workspace. Like like sim you can use the ideas from Polylet, but if you want to use the tool, then it needs to be in the certain structure. I, I can give a specific example of that, actually. Quite recently, I was being nosy and asked Firkin if I could take a look at the code base for his startup, uh, which is built as a polylith. And I'd never seen the code base before. I don't know anything about this domain that his, his company, Scrintel, uh, does, does uh, transcribing of uh, research documents and research interviews. So I, I don't know anything about it before. And he shared his screen with me. He showed me the components folder. And I, I, uh, how many components do you have around about right now? Maybe okay. 50, a bit more. Maybe 50. So I'm reading the names of these components, and it's domain names around transcribing and around audio. So you start to get a feeling for the domain. And then other ones have names to do with his cloud infrastructure and, and things that are specific with the deployment on AWS. And just through reading through those 50 names, because he'd chosen good names, and because they give you that level of abstraction for understanding a system, I felt like already I would know exactly where to start looking to make changes to particular functionality. And, and compare that to going to a new system where I, I have no idea what architecture they're using or, or they're using a framework that I, I don't know that framework yet. So you get that advantage of coming in. Like if you're a Rails expert, you come in and you see a new Rails project, you can get up to speed faster, right? Because you know where to start looking for stuff. Here, there's just one place to look you look in the components folder and you start to get a real feeling for the system. So I was kind of blown away that within 10 minutes, I felt comfortable in that code base, which is something that hadn't happened to me before in the past. And also the projects folder says what artifacts and may often services and maybe Lambda functions. You, how, how do you package this in production? Exactly. Exactly. So the components folder tells you what is the domain, how to, what kind of functionality are we building here? And then you look in projects and then you get a feeling for exactly what are we deploying and how. And that combination of understanding both is huge. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's a good segue actually to talk about how exactly will I use Polylith in practice? Yeah, exactly. I can answer that. Uh, I've been the one who built the most number of projects in Poglet. So mm -hmm. uh, I think like the daily work, or like I can give you an example. Yeah, I started this startup um, and the code base started maybe a year ago almost. And like what I did there is like, yeah, we had we had an idea. Okay, uh, okay, we want to build this kind of product. Uh, okay, we want to do transcription. Uh, we want people to be able to edit those transcriptions. Okay. Uh, what do what do I need to do? Okay, I need to be able to process some audio files that can be a component, like processing files, getting their information, like which format are they in, which codec they use, that can be one component. Where do I store these? Okay, I'm going to store it Amazon S3. Then that functionality can be a utility component. And then which software I'm going to use to transcribe this? Let's say Google Speech-to-Text then I can have a component for that specific service and then start playing with it in my REPL. Like it's just a Polit project. Think about it like maybe five components in one project and then open your REPL, start writing stuff. And then you prove your idea. Once it's proven, like we were like, okay, we want to deploy a backend service with a REST API. Then just add a base and then some uh, REST endpoints in that base 
and then package it, repackage it as a diatomic ions uh, project. But like you can also package it like as a, a jar file that you deploy somewhere traditionally, and then suddenly you have a working system. So you start from your development. You don't. We, we were not thinking about how we are going to deploy it in the end. We were just looking at how to get things done. And then suddenly when we were at that point, like we proved the idea, we need to deploy something, we picked an approach. Mm-hmm. So that's how, how it feels like working with Polylet. Mm. And I wanted to ask you something, Furkan. Presumably when you've been working on that project over a year, things have changed. You know, your understanding of the business changes or ideas change around how to solve different things. How has Polylith been to work with when you're sort of maintaining a code base that's, that's growing and changing? I think there are like maybe three topics under this. Like one is like how easy to refactor stuff because that happens a lot in at a startup like you do something and it doesn't work you need to change it completely and then they're like finding the right component in the in that folder and then changing the implementation is very easy so that's one benefit of Polit. the second one like this is like what happened to us like we started with using google's transcription service and then later on we decided to use amazon's transcription service as well so what we did is just like we created a very similar component uh, as the Google one and then with the same interface for Amazon's transcription service. So now I was able to switch between them easily because like in Polylet, like you use that component in other places through the interface. As long as the interface is the same, just plugging that in won't change anything. So that's kind of like the second um, benefit of like having Polylet, uh, especially in a fast-moving startup, I would say it's it's a it's a huge benefit. Right. I mean, so, these are all. Yeah. Go ahead, Fogen. Yeah, like the, the the third one. I mean, like third benefit from that sense is the non-functional requirements. Like also at the startup, like things like we started with one single server, not even a backup one because we didn't have money, and then later on there were like performance issues we needed to deploy uh, multiple services because of those non-functional requirements and this imagine like we started with one single monolithic server and now we have five services that we deploy uh, and development setup didn't change at all we have the exact same setup it's just like we combine different components together and then deploy only those ones mm-hmm. right so this is what I wanted to ask. Were there any like issues or problems? I think it's nice to talk about, you know, it helped me to do this and that. But did you encounter anything with Polylift that you felt like, oh, this this maybe should have been improved or this should have been better? Like, I don't, I think like the main issue is like just understanding the whole um, Polylift idea. If you don't understand that, a lot of things will feel uh, odd when you're doing it and maybe like second thing is like if if you're for example this happens to me like uh, i want to improve let's say the uh, continuous integration part of the system or i want to let's say package things in a certain way that i don't maybe i don't if i used lining and for example i could have just one command to do that but maybe i don't have it 
then mm -hmm. you might need to write maybe some additional components in a Polit workspace that helps you with that. But that can be a minus, but also that can be a plus as well, like this extensibility of, of it. Like I have quite a few of components that I only use during either during development or during deployment within the same code base. Were there any other commands that are worth talking about? I know you talked about info quite a lot. Uh, you didn't talk anything about depths or libs, if I remember. Is that worth talking about? I don't know. Maybe the depths command, it also shows a matrix uh, where you can see what... Uh, so, so so it's a matrix where, where, where you have your components and bases, uh, one per uh, line or row, and then you have columns. And the columns, they are interfaces because um, components they only know about interfaces so you, you can never access access another component through another namespace than the interface namespace but the depths command uh, shows the which interfaces uh, it depends on but but you can also give what project you're interested in and then it will show you the concrete components yeah, but in Polit, mo most of the time, the interface and the components, they are the same. I mean, at least they have the same name. So if you have an invoicer component, the name of that interface will also be invoicer. And remember that Furkan, so, so Furkan um, uh, wrote the first version of this tool and actually used it for a whole year. And it was really, really, really tiny. I think it was 500 lines of code. And, and he didn't have those tools. So when I discussed with him and I said, oh, I think I, we should have those tools. And then he said, I, we don't need them. I, I don't need them. I haven't felt the need of them. And actually that's, all, that's, that's very much true also actually that, that in Polyth dependencies, they are less important than they are in normally when you design systems. Uh, it's it's kind of if it compiles, it works. If you have a circular dependency, it will be de detected uh, actually both by the compiler in your development environment because you 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 have all your components there. Uh, but it will also be detected by the tool because it checks a lot of things. The, the example Furkan had with those two different components that he could swap. In that case, the tool would check, check that the that all the functions in their interface were uh, in sync. Okay, maybe it's it's worth mentioning the check command because we didn't mention about that. That's kind of the most important command. Yeah, the check command, but when you run the info command and test command, the check command is also executed. Uh, the first thing it does so. So if you run the info command often, it will also check your whole workspace. And it does that by, uh, how do you say, source introspection, or what do you call it? I don't know. Uh, Static code analysis. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. In the old version, we had those em uh, empty interfaces that was something extra that we have thrown away. So that before we compiled each component against those interfaces. But here... Um, uh, we, we, we can check uh, the whole uh, code base. And we, I think we have like 15 different checks that we... And, and there are things like, uh, this library is now missing 
in this uh, project or this you, you haven't added this component that uh, or, or actually interf- some component that implements or uses this interface in this project and so, so it checks a lot of things yeah, and I, I just want to hop in there and say one of the huge values I see of the check that confirms that no component can access private code of another component is it avoids what happens in, in my experience in a lot of other architectures where it's so easy to fall back into spaghetti code. You know, there's a little helper function somewhere in some layer that you know you shouldn't call because it goes against the rules, but actually doing it properly would mean a huge refactor. So you're just like, oh, I'm just going to call that. And then that happens again and again, and people aren't following the Boy Scout rule, and it kind of descends into spaghetti chaos. I'm sure you've all looked at legacy systems when you arrive at a new job and sort of hung your head in despair at, at seeing that situation because it crops up time and time and time again. And, and Polylith, because we're doing that check that enforces that the only way you can call functionality in another component is by calling the interface, you, you get rid of that problem entirely. It's just gone. That doesn't exist in Polylith. So the, if you want to expose functionality, you have to put it in the interface and you don't get these spaghetti calls where the hidden bits of components are calling each other behind the scenes. And I think that there's a huge value in that in terms of the readability and maintainability of the code base. What, what do you think, Jorgen? Yeah, yeah, of course. And, and maybe I should mention, why do we need to check that with by using a tool? I mean, in other... Uh, languages or normally I would say or always maybe you can do a check like that within uh, the language itself but here we can't do that and the reason is that a component lives in its own source directory and it doesn't know anything about the outside world we we don't even specify what other components it uses we don't specify what libraries this component uses so a component is, 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 is useful only in the context of a project. In the projects, we specify what libraries and concrete uh, components that we want to use. As uh, Furkan mentioned, we have two different components. Different components like for AWS and for Google Cloud, like Furkan mentioned? Yeah. Okay, you have, mm-hmm. let's say, we, let's call them AWS and Google. So, but they both implement uh, uh, the same interface uh, that could be, like, let's say, cloud. We, we, we name the interface cloud, let's say. In the Google component, we can uh, refer other components, oh, actually not components, but add the interface of other components That's the, and libraries. But actually what, what the code does is that it just refers uh, namespaces. That's what, what it does. And, and when we work with the code from the development project, we have decided what components to use and what libraries, what set of libraries and components we want to use in the development environment. So in this case, we need to, we need to dis, uh, decide should, should the, the AWS or the Google component be the default component in the development environment. But then we can have we can even do, do it like Furkan did. We start with, AW, with the AWS component in, our, uh, in, in, a, in, in one of our projects and then switch to the Google one. But we could also have two different projects where we use uh, uh, one in one project we use AWS and the other one Google. So, so it's, it's very flexible. 
Exactly, that's what we do. Like we have two services. Like one is handling the transcription on Amazon, and one is handling on Google. So, but they implement the same interface. So all the other components that are shared are the same components. And then that, that I, I guess that will lock you in less into a cloud provider in this case. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's the same logic. Like if you have a library, let's say, let's say I'm using like X logging library. And like if I wrap that logging library in a component and then like hide away all the details of that library in that component and just have some functions in its in its in its interface, later on I can just swap out that library, logging library, and then use another logging library. And you won't need to refactor the entire code base. Cool. Um, are there any important tips or any kind of uh, places where people can ask questions if they want, or is there anything else do you think we should share? I think like um, we have a forum, people can ask questions, and like we have a Slack channel in the Clojureans Slack, so that is also a place to reach out to us quickly. Otherwise, if you don't prefer those, like Yoke and I have Twitter accounts, you can reach us there or send an email, I guess. All right. Or there's the GitHub for the project. Right. If you find any issues or have any yeah. challenges with, with the technical side of things, you can always ask questions there. Mm -hmm. um, would there be anything else that we should mention, talk about? I think one thing I, you asked, yeah, Jack, but we didn't reply i think is like like what practical things the tool gives i want to say in one sentence we also have commands to create a workspace create a component you know like those practical things like oh you're going to start a poll that workspace you can just write poly create workspace right otherwise i just want to say thank you to you Jessic, for inviting us on again and having this chat with us it was really nice talking about it again with you yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I want to say also, I want to finish this in a way that, you know, you don't have any motivation in terms of financial motivation behind it. So I think it's great that you created this high quality documentation material. You try to show people like, why don't we just try to standardize a bit our code bases? So if we switch from team to team, we can understand it. Uh, and I think it's great that you take the time to create this tool that helps you a lot. Uh, and again, um, there is nothing behind there uh, apart from you just trying to share good ideas, uh, which I think is fantastic for the community. So thank you for creating it. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Great. Thank you right. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, consider supporting it by rating on the platform you're listening to, sharing with others, and supporting it directly by buying some video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure. You can check out the courses at yatsekshare.com. That is J-A-C-K. S-C-H-A-E dot com. Thanks.